0: The millennial pagan podcast i'm your host autumn wolf
1: and i'm jara stone and in virtual studio today we have reverend angie buchanan hello
0: hi
2: hey. so nice to be with you yeah, it's yes. wonderful
1: to to have you and thank you for taking time out of your uh, out of your schedule to come talk with us my pleasure
0: so Angie is on for a topic that I have said I wanted to cover before. We've had people on for birth and birth midwifery or midwifery. There we go. However, there's another part of life that happens that, that is the end in air quotes, depending on who you are. And that is death midwifery. There we go.
1: <laughs> the uh, the 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 always inevitable.
0: Midwifery? Right? Right? Nobody no, gets on the line. Yeah. Death and taxes, according to Ben.
1: Even taxes is debatable.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) death, taxes, or prison?
1: Something like that.
0: Yeah, no. But anyway, so before we dive into learning about death midwifery, we're going to go ahead and ask Angie to give us her coming of witch story. Or
1: in this case, because she did ask, the coming of pagan story. And actually, before we go into that, could you explain why you kind of wanted to go that route?
2: Well, I think it's kind of all interwoven. I'm what they call a family tradition pagan. So I was raised in a pagan household, so I didn't really convert or come to it. I was born into it. And the family tradition was one of animism, and it looks a whole lot different in many ways than the contemporary pagan scene does. But over the past decade or so, there's been sort of a, a disclosure happening amongst people who are maintaining their indigenous traditions, particularly in the Slavic regions, but also in other parts of Europe, and some of them who have relocated in the United States and Canada, who did not enter the contemporary pagan scene via Wicca. Or, as Wicca started to diversify and claim witchcraft as part of their religion, it didn't interact with that or come in that way either. So, the reason that I distinguish between pagan and witch is because, for me, and, and your mileage may vary on this, I see witchcraft as a practice. So, for me, it's not a religion, it's a practice. And it's employed by every religion. So. When the high school basketball team gathers around the goalpost before their game and they join hands and they bow their heads and they pray that they will play their best game at the very best, that's what they pray for, that they'll play their best game. What's not being said is that they want the other team to lose. And that's (laughs) spellcasting. Whenever Mm -hmm. you petition something outside of yourself To come in and contribute to a predestined outcome, that's witchcraft. And some people may call it prayer. Some people call it, you know, wishing. There are a lot of different ways to approach it. But I think that vocabulary can be tricky in that some of it says something that leads you to believe that it's not the same as something else and i happen to believe mm-hmm. that it is. So it, it's actually kind of anything. funny you
1: bring that up because i've actually recently been in a pretty big debate online as to calling what christians do like on a on a sunday and like prayer and things like that actually calling it witchcraft because technically by definition it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and you know people are repulsed or put off by that word, but it's a trigger of response. It's a knee-jerk reaction because we've been indoctrinated to equate it with something that's spooky, spooky, evil, when in fact it is pretty much the same darn vehicle as any other of the major religions' ways of praying.
0: Mm -hmm. Agreed.
1: So thank you for sharing that. So kind of coming up and being born into the pagan path, how would you say the workings of it growing up and kind of growing into who you are today? Kind of kind of go, go through that.
2: Well, it was not easy growing up this way. I had a very unusual upbringing. I came when I was three months old, my birth father died. And when I was three years old, my mother stepped, it's, in my culture it's called stepping in, my mother stepped in to a family where there was a widower who had seven children. And so from the time I was three on, I was raised as the youngest of that brood. I was being raised in a period of time uh, or an era where to ask somebody what their religion or their politics were was considered impolite And so my mother would tell us that we were pagan, and she did use that word. And part of it was like, you know, pagan with a wink sort of thing. But she would tell us that if anyone asked us what our religious tradition was, we were supposed to tell them that we were pagan, and then follow it up and say that we were also communist. And, of course, you know, that was shocking to the adult on a couple of levels. First of all, to hear that come out of a kid's mouth but it also sent a very clear <laughs> message that this child has been instructed to politely call this adult out for asking an impolite question by giving an absurd answer and it worked and so you know a lot of what i did it, the the family was animistic so that essentially means that everything is alive that life itself is a mystery that is something that inhabits these vessels that are bodies and vessels that are plants and vessels that are animals and rocks and everything has its own life even though it may not be comparable to what my experience of life is so we cycled with nature naturally having the size family that we had we grew a garden and a lot of the a lot of the ideology that came with that was superstitious or so they say and you know, there were just things that we knew about fishing and moon cycles that were plugged into our, into our life and that, that worked for us. We did not, and I have not ever actually worked with deity. So as I moved through young adulthood and I went to college and I started in my career, which was law enforcement, I also got involved with the political scene. And I became very much aware of the idea that there was a First Amendment and that that First Amendment was broad enough for me to use to make sure that, that I and the people that I knew who practiced these things and did not subscribe to the Christian mythologies that were so prevalent during the day were protected. And I, I started getting involved in campaigns, and I chaired a couple of campaigns, and mostly I would have conversations with the candidates about the importance of the First Amendment and to sort of steer them away from anything that smacked of trying to install a theocracy in our society. So after doing that for many years, I ended up, you know, I moved around the country a bit, I ended up in the Chicago area with my husband at the time. And we divorced after that. And I discovered the modern pagan scene. And there was actually two sort of markers that happened. One was in 1979, my mom gave me a copy of Drawing Down the Moon. And the conversation that went with it was sort of, you know, I don't really know what's going on here, but this sounds a lot like us. And, you know, it seems to make sense. And this person seems to be fairly intelligent. And, you know, you may want to read up on this because of all of this religious freedom stuff that you're involved in. And understand, too, that in my family, you know, I was 18 years old before I truly understood that I didn't have 200 aunts and uncles. So there were always people coming through and people that spoke the same languages, knew the same things. And I'm not saying that there were 200 pagans out there traveling around the country, but there were definitely, you know, a lot of different families that were nomadic. A lot of them were, had, they worked in circuses. They, you know, they traveled around the country. They had no home. They lived out of campers, you know, that sort of thing. And they were always coming through our backyard. And it took me a long time to understand what that was about. So, I knew that there was a population out there that was going to be in trouble. And I knew that I had a history, an ancestral history with the Holocaust in Germany, with children being thrown into the fire. And it was a threat that I grew up with that you better be, you better be good or we're going to, you know, the Germans are going to throw you on the fire. And so moving into adulthood with that sort of infusion making sure that the politicians that I worked for understood without actually admitting to anything. And then moving through that into Chicago and being aware that there were lots of communities that were coming up because I was reading Drawing Down the Moon and finding some of those communities and engaging with them and still staying on the forefront of the religious freedom issues. That kind of brought me into the the contemporary movement and so that sort of is the paganism piece of it, but I want to I want to intertwine that with the death midwifery. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'll just stream of consciousness and feel free to, to jump in if you know I missed anything or you, you want to know more about something. So,
0: what would you consider your current practice as far as religious practice goes? How does that look?
2: Still animist. I still celebrate the cycles of the season. I chart my life by it. I'm hardwired to know what phase the moon is in at any given time. I don't have to look up. I just know how my body feels. You know, I'm just environmentally conscious, and it looks pretty much the same as it always has.
0: I think that's kind of the the hope for our future is that we see more people that that grow up in it and then keep it. Because my best friend was third generation pagan. Her grandparents owned a store here in Phoenix. Both her parents are current active pagans. And then she is now Christian. So we don't see a whole lot of the whole growing up and continuing on. Mm-hmm. But I think that's that's a good thing. And that's a part of who we are is that we don't raise children to say you have to be what we are. Mm-hmm. Right. And that
2: happens often. Kids mm-hmm. rebel.
0: Mm-hmm. and
2: sometimes pagan kids that are raised rebel into Christianity because it's so normal and everybody understands it and it's beautiful and it's got a lot of money and they've got all the whistles and bells, you know, so it's not unusual to hear a family child, you know, converting to Christianity.
0: And it's comfortable and safe and Mm -hmm. all of that. Yeah. So tell us how you became a death midwife.
2: Okay so when I was a police officer first of all in 1980 my 10 month old son died so oh, I had a very early interaction that was the second real up close and personal interaction that I had with death and I I started to realize as I moved through the world that I you know I had this thing that happened that you know I'd be like one of 45 people at the bus stop and I was the one that somebody approached to tell me that you know they had just gotten divorced or their dad had died or you know so it was I was giving off some sort of signal that I was safe to talk to and I was always a little bewildered by it but you know I kind of rode it through and then as I got involved in I started out in corrections. So I was working at a federal prison that was a co-ed medical facility. And the majority of the people that I was there for were there because they were pregnant. And so I attended many, many, many births during my tenure there as a guard. So, you know, I would be in this room and everybody in the room would be really busy Mom was working really hard. The doctors, the nurses, everybody was working really hard. And then there'd be like this pop and bam, suddenly there's like another person in the room. And it felt like it was, it felt like it was an event that I could feel in every cell in my body. And there were some things that happened during that time period that made me feel like that was a space in and of itself. So when someone enters this plane of human existence, they come into a space and it's a very fleeting space. And there was a lot that happened you know, during those births and things that I could get into, but I won't at this point. I also, on the other end of that spectrum, we were right in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and AIDS had not even received its name yet. They didn't, they hadn't named it. But there were many people in the facility who were dying from it. And it was at a point where when they would go into the hospital, we had to dress hazmat to go into the room with them because they thought it could be transmitted by mosquito. And I sat bedside of many people who were dying of this. And, and so I realized that there was a very similar thing happening in that space. And I started to call it The Threshold. And I realized that the threshold of entering life and the threshold of leaving it, for me, they presented as the same place. And as I moved through, I, again, colleagues and friends would come to me and say, you know, my mom's dying, my kid's dying, whatever, you know, I just need to talk about this. Or can you come and sit with them? And And so I I sort of got known for that. And I also found that I was being called to a lot of fatalities, car accidents, um, that sort of Uh thing. And, you know, I learned that that death doesn't always happen on pretty white sheets. Sometimes it happens on the asphalt in the middle of a crosswalk. And I was very comfortable with that. And so as I moved through life and I moved out of, I was in Kentucky at the time, I moved out of there, moved to Chicago, started getting involved with the contemporary pagan movement. I met a woman by the name of Nora Cedar Wind Young. And Nora is one of the foremothers of the death positive movement. She's one of the founders of the National Home Funeral Alliance. She was this amazing, compassionate woman who was the first, That was this was the first time I'd heard it called death midwifery. And she was training death midwives. And I brought her in. I was at that point, I was doing a, a weekend retreat event for women. And I called her in to do an event called From Womb to Tomb. And I had somebody talking about the birth aspect of it and her talking about the death aspect. And I was completely enchanted with the whole idea of what has happened to death in our culture, in our society, and how it has been taken from us. And as our final rite of passage, mm-hmm. it has been taken from us. We, we plan for birthdays, we plan for weddings, graduations, retirements, and then our final rite of passage, we act like that's not going to happen to us. And we're missing it. And I think that it has impacted our culture in a very negative way.
0: Or we just write it down somewhere and then nobody knows about it until the time. And then it's like, well, that's not going to comfort me what you're asking for and i think that's a like having that discussion as a family sitting down and saying this is what i would like what will make it easier on you and what can we do what can't we do and it's just those conversations are so taboo yeah
1: it's one of the last
2: taboos in our culture
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah i kind of think it's one of those things where you know it is it is something that has kind of been lost to not just time but lost to culture mhm mm-hmm. And it's definitely yep. something that I think that that is needed, especially over this last year, having so much death happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's something that a lot of people were not prepared for. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, one question I do have being that you do work with death a lot do you now work with any deities to kind of help you through that or any death deities that kind of show you different aspects of it?
2: No, I don't work with deity, and but I do work with what I call other. So okay. I truly believe that there are things that exist outside of time, space, and the five senses. They are, they are different uh, than we are. They are not human. And I call them the psychopomp. So the psychopomp is, is cross-culture and continent, in mythology, in legacy and lore, and it is it is a an archetype that dwells in the threshold to escort souls. And it can appear as many things. It can appear as an animal, it can appear as an ancestor or a relative, it can appear as a deity, but You know, that is completely through the filter of whoever it is that's dying and I meet them where they are. So if they see Jesus in the room, then that's their reality and I'm going to respect that and hold that space for them. If I see something in the room, then I'm going to respect that and, you know, get whatever message I can and meet that where it is. But a lot of times for me, there, there does appear to be a handing off sort of sensation when someone's dying. But I don't know that I would give that a specific name. I don't even know if it's the same thing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because it could definitely be different. It's essentially what's coming to them to bring them through.
2: Right. And it's all about them. Your death is Mm -hmm. all about you. Death is more intimate than sex. You only get to do it once and it's all about you. And so... You know, I, I hear people say, well, funerals are for the living. Well, to a point, yes, they are. However, people should be able to have the final word and the final say-so in how they die, in what level of care they want at end of life. You know, do they want a DNR? Who's their power of attorney for health care and finance? Who You know, all of the practical, it's, I tell my students, you have to have emotional, spiritual, practical ways to approach this. You have to have ESP to do this work. Um, But, uh, you know, it is is multifaceted, multi-leveled, and each piece is a puzzle piece that is important to bring together the full picture. So the whole idea of the grief and the emotional and the anticipatory grief and, you know, all the things that happen when you're first diagnosed, you know, the emotional pieces of that Commercial pieces of making those decisions, having those conversations, the spiritual aspect of it, which is the for me, who has I've been majorly involved in the interfaith forums for years, and one of the main things that will certainly get you in trouble in the interfaith forums is for you to say the one thing we all believe in, you know, because <laughs> because <laughs> that's <laughs> simply not true. But I can see yeah. this—the one thing that we all know is that no matter what you believe happens after you die, you will have a final exhale. And when that happens, whatever it is that animates you leaves, and you will cease to be human. And that is a sacred space. So that's holy ground. Right. And we need to start treating it that way. Mm-hmm. And it is not ever. I,
1: li- I like that. That, that really... Yeah, that, that really hit, hit really close because one of the big things, and not a lot of people know this about me, my dad passed away in 2010, and I wasn't there for it. And that really messed me up. I am sorry that you're, you're grieving
2: that. And I would also say that this COVID experience has brought a lot of that to a lot of people. And Mm -hmm. the one thing that I can say is that the moment of death does not define your entire relationship, nor does it negate the relationship that you had with someone. You had an entire lifetime with that person, good things, bad things, it doesn't matter. You know, this person contributed to the DNA that runs in your blood. They will always be there. And while we have a preference of making ceremony and being in that sacred space as someone transitions from life into death, it is not necessary. And partially, I, I believe that's partially because when a person dies and goes back into the now they are everywhere, now they are everything, into that mystery, into that Analysts into that space of knowing, they may not be able to communicate, but there is that sense of knowing of your pain and your grief. And the fact that had there been any way for you to have been there, you know, even if it's from I really didn't think he was going to die to there was just no financial way I could get there to I was a half a world away, you know, or in the COVID cases, you know, I'm not allowed. The fact of the matter is that these people, they don't lose who you were to them. And you don't lose who you were to them or who they were to you simply because you weren't there for the 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it it is that it takes for someone to do that final exhale. And, you know, you can have that holy ground wherever you want. So, you know, you can hold vigil that's not bedside vigil. You can make your own sacred space if you want to entertain that kind of spirit, if you want to be in that threshold energy, and you can do that wherever you are. And a lot of people, you know, I tell my students all the time, you're going to find out things in this class that, you know, you didn't know about, and I... I would encourage you to not self-flagellate with the woulda, coulda, shouldas, you know, because you don't know what you don't know. And love, in my opinion, love is the only thing that transcends the veil. And so they're taking that with them.
1: So on that note, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. That way we can go ahead and rehydrate ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think we will be right back. Millennial Pagan Podcast is exclusively supported by Patreon. Listeners like you can get great benefits from your favorite show, such as... At $1 a month, you get a personalized shoutout at the end of the next full-length episode. At $5 a month, you receive a thank you card in the mail with a Millennial Pagan Podcast button and sticker enclosed. Additionally, $5 a month supporters have access to our monthly 30-minute minisodes. Patreon supporters are also the first to learn about new and exciting updates to Millennial Pagan Podcast. More benefits and exclusive content to come. Audio is provided by Goblin Tech Productions.
0: And we're back with Millennial Pagan Podcast and Angie, who we are talking with about death midwifery.
1: So actually, one quick question I do have. Because it's it's kind of been kind of been hitting me S- since I did find out that we were going to be talking to you. Is there a difference between being a death midwife and a death doula?
2: Functionally, there is not, but I I don't use the word doula because of the etymology of it. Okay, essentially, it's a Greek word that translates to a female slave, and doulos is the male version of it. It was not just a female slave, but it was a slave that was intimately interwoven in the household, so they bathed and dressed and provided sexual favors for their mistresses and masters. It was taken by the birth industry and softened to the woman who serves and Also, it started to mean the one that assists the midwife. And that's not, I don't do any of that. And so things being what they are in our culture of trying to be respectful and also to not just colonialize whatever word we want, I determined that I would not use the word doula. But functionally, they are the same. And there are some deaf workers.
1: Yeah, I did not know about that. With the connotation of the name. Yeah,
2: and there are workers, you know, deaf workers and birth workers who call themselves doulas, but I choose not to.
0: Mm-hmm. So, when in the room and knowing that the time is coming and preparing, what all would you do spiritually and physically to prepare the person, the family? like a brief overview?
2: Well, in a perfect world, I will have had communication with the person and the family prior to -hmm. this happening. And, you know, there, again, we're back to the emotional, spiritual, practical. So the practical aspects of it are to have discussed these essential documents and who's doing what and, you know, what sort of body disposition is going to be enacted? Is it a is it a natural burial? Is it a you know a contemporary burial with embalming, which I am morally opposed to, but sometimes it has to happen. Cremation, uh, and then there are new kids on the block: recimation, which is a water cremation. We've got some other new new modalities that are coming out of the West Coast: human composting. So there are lots of different options there are you know probably a dozen different options of of body disposition that need to be discussed and you know as far as a funeral goes what kind of music do they want what's their preference do they want particular poetry readings do they want a memorial do they want a viewing do they want a visitation you know there are just a ton of different choices that we should discuss with the person preferably but if that person is incapable, then with the family that's, that's doing this. And, you know, it used to be that our, our beloveds would die at home and there would be a home funeral. And it would be very simple that people would pop a door off the hinges and put it across a couple of sawhorses and grandma would lie in state in the parlor, which houses don't have parlors anymore. They have living rooms. Which is a change in the vocabulary that the funeral industry is responsible for. And death essentially was taken out of the hands of the family at that point, and we're reclaiming it. So, for a long time, you know, when embalming came on the scene in the Civil War, it was to get the soldiers back home so that their families could have these final rights for them. And then, as World War II happened, and, you know, we progressed into a more modern era. The funeral industry determined that death was a messy business and people would be offended or, or you know, could be offended. And why not just let the professionals take care of it? And we lost the ability to be able to be with our dead in a way that was meaningful. And we were relegated to mm-hmm. uh, four hours cry on cue, get over your grief. You get three days off of work you know, and death has been taken from us. And over the years, we realized that there's a mistake here, that people are, we've got the walking wounded out there because they have not been able to appropriately grieve their dad. And, Mm -hmm. and people never got to say goodbye. And it's not just a matter of, you know, Mm -hmm. a Jera like you had, where you couldn't be there or you weren't there with your dad. But this is a matter of, person dies in the hospital, funeral home comes and whisks them away. And so there's no, I Uh don't use the word closure, but there's no resolution because you never actually got to see that person dead. And you never got to see that, you know, and, and for me with dead people, it's a, I'm not in love with that body. I'm in love with whatever it was that inhabited that body. And, Now I realize Mm -hmm. that that is no longer there. It's gone. And all I have is this vessel. And that goes for people and animals, you know, pets. I'm, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. so uh, much of an advocate for grieving your pet. You know, I just had a friend who his 23 year old cat died. 23 years old. There are marriages that don't last that long. You know, that is beloved. Yeah. That's a that's a family. Yes.
0: I was very fortunate that 2020 only took our beloved dog, and she was lucky enough to die at home. We watched her spirit leave because my whole house is pagan or pagan adjacent. But what was hard for me was we got like maybe three, four minutes for the veterinarian to get prepared to take the body away. And the image that sticks with me is when he went to roll her on the towel to move her I, know, I knew she wasn't there anymore, but it was very hard for me to see the body moved in that way. It kind of hit home that she isn't there anymore. And then all of a sudden, she's gone. And it was the first time I've interacted with the dead body of a loving family member. So I was like, all of a sudden, like, no, we have, we have things we must do with this. And you're taking it away. And it, to me, it was just this emptiness of, but, but we need to take care of her. We need to prepare her for the next thing. And it was 20 minutes of me covering all the mirrors and black cloth and uh, mm-hmm. picking up what bits of fur was removed because of the shaving and stuff like that and just taking care of those little things as opposed to what for some reason in my heart wanted was the whole body to prepare. Mm-hmm. So it was just a very interesting thing because it was the first time as an adult that I was dealing with physically being in the room with death
2: Mm -hmm. yeah that's a that's a great entry point for you to have your heart sucked out of your chest like that so now
0: yes and luckily we knew what was happening ish it was still a shock because all of a sudden it was like oh, she has cancer, maybe she'll make it to Christmas, and then she didn't make it through the rest of the weekend. So it was five days of solid crying, and if anybody says that that's too much for a dog, then you don't have a dog to love. and I'm sorry, you need one or something.
1: I I still have clippings of my dog that, that we had to have put down from when I was still in, not even in high school yet. Because he was with me all the way through childhood.
0: And that's your family dog. And I'm one of those weirdos that's like, boy needs dog, dog needs boy.
2: And that's a friend.
0: Mm -hmm. That is someone
2: that you have lived with 24 and 7 for many, many years. And, you know, you can do ceremony with a pet. You know, I've I've seen everything from laying in state for a pet. Mm Mm-hmm. Dry ice and techno ice are easily come by if you want to preserve for a couple days. Some people just need a few hours. But, you know, even though whatever animated that being is no longer there, that's still their vessel. And Mm -hmm. there's still a a measure of respect for that vessel that carried your beloved for so many years. So it's, Mm -hmm. um, I'm always... I always find it difficult when people try to be dismissive. Oh, it was just a cat. Oh, it was just a dog.
0: (laughs) I feel like there's a sense of there's a certain amount of time and it's different for every being of how long you're still tied to it. You might not be physically in that vessel anymore, but it's jarring to be removed from it. It's like, I've been in here for X amount of years and it's like, you can get confused. You can get lost. That's why we have those traditions of covering mirrors and such. And to me, to have it whisked away, it was just, wait. Um, (laughs) But when we received her ashes, multiple of our tribe said that they could not feel her there anymore. And we all had this sense of knowing when she was out of connection with our world. Like We couldn't affect or hurt her anymore or... Change the outcome of where she was going. And so that was a uh, very comforting, still hurts, but now I carry on my phone the background screen is a picture of her looking out into the woods. And to me, that's the Summerlands. So I know what I'm going to, she's going to be the guide to where the tribe stays mm-hmm. for the remainder. That's what I have to look forward to.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, um, speaking of which, uh, we all have different ways of dealing with loss and with grief. And it is it is the same pain, no matter, mm-hmm. you know, if something has meaning to you, it's the same pain, no matter whether it's a person or an animal. And people who don't understand that need to really have an opinion about it to express to someone else. So, yeah. And, and... I think that again, the idea of us hiding death or being afraid of it or having it whisked away is—it makes it even more difficult because we don't have the opportunity to process it, and mm-hmm. uh, you know that's just—that's just not fair. And it's, you know, it's been damaging in ways that we are only just beginning to understand. And I think that one of the things that, you know, we want to take a look at is how it has, how our hiding of death has impacted younger generations and children today. There was a study done with like 12 children, all of whom had accidentally shot and killed someone else, got a hold of a gun, shot and killed someone else under the age of 10. Mm -hmm. And those kids did not understand what death was. I mean, they're watching movies and somebody gets blown to bits on the beach. And the next month that person's in, you know, getting the girl in the next movie, they play video games Mm -hmm. where you shoot them up. Somebody bleeds out in the street, you hit the reset button, everybody pops up to play again. You know, we have not, you know, we don't want our kids to go to grandma's funeral because they don't want her to remember him like that or You know, there's all these excuses Mm -hmm. and all these reasons as to why we are hiding death. And most of it is death anxiety because, you know, we're not willing to face our own mortality. So we're not going to allow our children, you know, to be impacted by this. And in doing so, we have failed to teach them what death is. And so that is a a thing that we really need to address. Death needs to be normalized.
0: Agreed. Uh-huh.
1: I I just find it funny that that we were talking about ginger about about your dog and then Angie, your dog just starts uh, starts making a rile it, rile up.
2: <laughs> I'm sure there's something very offensive going on outside that he needs. He thinks I should. be <laughs> Sorry about that.
0: I'm wondering what's going on behind me. My apparently my niece is home.
2: Oh, <laughs> so I can hear her shittering. On. You know these kinds <laughs> of. These kinds of online interviews and things have really changed our, our world. Mm-hmm.
1: I kind of feel it's actually made people more human. Like it's actually made yes. people realize that people are more human.
0: I yes. agree. And work life separation is difficult, and respecting home is definitely more so on a lot of people's lists.
2: And we're doing funerals over Zoom. Uh, yeah. You know, we're doing deathbed vigils over zoom so yeah
0: it's
2: really changed us
0: saying goodbye over zoom and things like that and boy well angie i guess my last question is what would you say to somebody who goes i want to do this work i want to get involved what kind of advice would you give them and how should they start that going about
2: well first of all you don't have to be trained to midwife someone it's you know It's a natural thing that people can do. The training that I offer just gives you a whole toolbox of things that are going to make your life a whole lot easier because it's all consolidated in one place and you're not going to have to go tracking it down and looking for it. And especially not while you're trying to grieve too. And, you know, the whole grief aspect of loss is the funeral industry can be very predatory to people who are in a very vulnerable state. And that is changing fortunately, but it has not changed. And so um, to have the kind of information to be able to say, you know, I want to see your price list. I want to hear your price list over the phone, which is federally mandated. You can call any funeral home at any point in time and say, I want to know what your general price list is, and they must give it to you over the phone. To understanding what's the difference between policy and law, it is funeral home policy that if you're going to have a visitation, you must be involved. It is not law in any 50 states that you must be involved because it's a religious freedom issue. It's a breach of the First Amendment, which Uh kind of circles me back to my original sort of sharing about how I got involved in all this. Uh But I would advise you to get some training, mostly because if you don't want to hand it all off to the professionals who are going to charge you $8,500, which is the median price of a funeral in America today. If you want to understand what the ecological footprint of something is, we're dumping 860,000 gallons of embalming fluid into our soil and our groundwater every year in this country. Our current burial practices are unsustainable. What are your options? If you have a particular need, so for pagans, You know, where do you want your magical library and your tools to go? Who do you want to have those? What do you want to have Mm -hmm. happen? Do you want them buried, burned? Do you want them passed on to someone else? You know, you certainly don't want them showing up at Goodwill. What are you going to do with that? What's your, you know, what's your idea for that? So I give you all of the questions and then options for the answers from everything to, you know, your DNR. Do you want everything possible done to keep you alive? Do you want the middle road, which is if you feel like you can come back with a reasonable quality of life, do what it takes? Or do you want nothing? And to honor what people want. We talk about suicide. We talk about people who end their own lives. We talk about death with dignity. These are all things that you should know about because it's not about you. It's about the person that's Mm -hmm. dying. And you can self-apply it, and then it becomes about you. But in order for you to be able to serve in a non-medical, holistic way, the person who is dying, in order for you to fill the gap between the medical profession and the funeral industry, where there's a huge gap, and that's the place that the death midwife works in, you know, what are you bringing to the table for this person? And so I would advise you to to do some training. There are many programs out there. I have one of them. And, you know, it's up to you to decide whether or not this is something that you want to do. You're going to have to build the business just like you would build any other business. It's not like you take the training and, you know, 25 people are coming begging you to come to work for them. It doesn't work that way. So... Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to step outside of yourself so that you don't become the one who is needing to be the attention focus when the rubber hits the road. You don't want to be the one melting down and now the family has to take care of you. Learn how to bathe a body. Hmm. Learn how to preserve a body. Learn how to be an anchor. Learn some things to say to both comfort and to, to offer practical solutions to things. You know, there's just so much that can be really helpful. So I have lots of people who take this training mostly for themselves and their families. I have those who do it for a living. I have those who combine it with their mental health profession. I have counselors that come through, I have nurses that come through, I have veterinarians that come through, you know ministers who are just adding these skills to a toolbox that they already have. So anyone can do this work, but I think it's, you know, as with anything, it's good to get a body of information to help you inform the work.
1: So I think one last thing that I have, and just because I've always been one of those types of people that's always had like a morbid curiosity about death, which I guess is kind of redundant. (laughs) but and if you know if you're not comfortable answering this that's fine what would you say is one of the strangest oddest or unusual requests that you've had as a death midwife
2: um i think more than likely it is it was a man that i was sitting with who asked me he was having a problem dying. He was hanging on. His wife was this lovely little wonderful person. She had gone out to get her hair done. And I just flat asked him what, you know, what is happening here? You're, you're having a problem. And he wanted to kind of know whether or not he could trust me. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you can, but you know, I'm not going to be able to, I mean, if you've killed somebody, you know, we're going to have to talk about that. But uh, (laughs) what ended up happening was that he, his mother, many, like 20 years prior to that, or 10 years prior to that, his mother was dying. His wife was like majorly caretaking the mother. And there was a nurse that was coming in and he had had an affair with the nurse. And in the basement of their home, there were love letters. And we were in their home. I was, he was dying at home. And there were some love letters. And so he asked me if I would make sure that she never saw those. And he was a gun collector. So he had gun safes in the basement that she never bothered. So I agreed mm-hmm. that I would do that. And I, I went downstairs and I found this bundle of letters he had gotten a post office box. And he had had this affair with this woman while she was here. And then she went back to, I think she was like from Hungary or Czechoslovakia or something. She went back home. And they they maintained correspondence and for many years. And then it they, they just kind of naturally ended, but he had kept these letters. And it was bothering him enough that he couldn't die peacefully. So I went down and I got them and I tucked them into a bag. And I left with them. And I came home and my husband is the most amazing human being in the world. And I explained to him what had happened and he stood up and went out to the backyard and started our fire pit up and we released those letters and it was not anything that she ever needed to know on this plane. And so that's probably one of the most unusual things that I've ever had. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I do want to say thank you again, just for taking, taking the time out of your day, just to come visit with us and kind of explain what dead myth, death myth midwifery is.
0: I'm not the only one.
1: Yeah, oh, no, I I stumble all day long. <laughs> now I know that you do have uh that there is a website that kind of has some resources and kind of uh explaining a little bit more and showing uh what's the the website that you have? It's deathmidwife.org. All right. Awesome. And and they can contact you through that website as well? Yes. Awesome.
2: There's a uh, contact information there. There's a newsletter you can sign up for that I'm very bad about getting out. There's um, <laughs> uh, I'm there. on Facebook. <laughs> you know, it's I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty accessible. You can also find me through EarthTraditions.org, which is a pagan church that I'm a minister with. And you know, and one thing that I want to say, you know, before we go quickly is that what I'm talking about here is death midwifery. And death midwifery is something that is accessible to everyone, no matter what you believe. However, because I have a spirituality that I apply internally while I'm doing my work, that is not something that gets shared in the death midwifery training. But I do an additional training outside of that with clear transparency that this is a pagan perspective and approach to death and dying and being in the death threshold and that would be the psychopomp and i just finished a program on that for witch con yesterday um and i offer it through through earth traditions a couple of times like three times during the fall of the year because that is specifically the, mm-hmm. the religious piece of it and that's the working in the threshold with the entities that I find there and the unusual things that have happened that are outside of time space in the five senses when someone has died. Things that I've seen appear or felt or smelled or. So I'm trying to kind of mm-hmm. keep those two mm-hmm. separate. And yet, you know, it's a Venn diagram. <laughs> so,
1: and intertwine. Yeah. Yeah. will yeah. right. right, well, thank you again for that hey autumn what i got a question for you what do we have any new patreon supporters this month
0: i was getting to that (laughs) mr interrupty yes we do we have Tyne is our newest patreon supporter so thank you so much Tyne, for your support and i'm sure you guys heard a lovely ad recorded by sound guy drew sometime during our break about how you and why you should be a patreon supporter So Jara, yes, where do they go if they want to watch you do stuff, see you, do stuff?
1: So I got a lot of things going on. Of course, (laughs) Uh, you can you can find me on TikTok as az underscore silent underscore Bob. You can find me on my Instagram as haggard underscore haggard underscore cosplay. A lot of underscores.
0: Yeah, what's with that? Uh, Don't answer just, that question. Keep yeah,
1: <laughs> and then I am currently doing a video a day on YouTube. Just look for me under Haggard underscore Haggard. Uh, my channel is there. I'm currently in the midst of doing kind of like a weight loss thing for myself, and it's actually I've been having my peaks and valleys. But now that March is here, I'm marching on to my goal, and I'm actually doing a lot <laughs> better than I uh, than I was previously in the month of February or the month of candies and chocolates, as so, I like to call it. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, all that, uh, you can definitely find me. And, uh, of course, I always love interacting with people on any single one of those platforms. And what about you, Autumn?
0: Oh, me. Um, yes. So you can find me on WordPress at iron wolf circle, and you can find me on Facebook as autumn wolf and Twitter. And then For the podcast, you can find us as Millennial Pagan Podcast or Pagan Pod on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. I don't have my own Instagram because I'm keeping up with the pods. (laughs) So, and Angie just told us where, as far as your website, was there any other social media networks where they can find you?
2: Nope, just on Facebook. I think I have a Twitter account, but I don't know what it is. I Every now and then (laughs) I get a prompt to do something, but I'm never on there. It makes me angry
0: to get on there. <laughs> I, I understand 100%. Every now and then I check the Twitter and I'm like, oh, people liked our post. Yay. <laughs> that was about it. Because it, it all comes from one source that everything posts, luckily. So with that being said... Thank you all so much for listening in, and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. As always, if you have any episode suggestions, hit us up on Gmail at millennialpegandpod at gmail.com. Yeah.
1: So with that being said, merry meet.
0: Merry part. And
1: And merry meet again. again. That's still so difficult to do over Zoom.